The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning, church. How are we doing? It's great to see you. Uh, if you're new here, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Missio Day, and uh, really thankful that you would be here. I see a few new faces and some I haven't seen in a while, so uh, welcome back. And uh, if you are new and looking to get connected, I've got two things for you. One, uh, you can fill out a Connect card, which is just that gray and blue card in the seat back in front of you. Uh, you can fill that out at any point during the gathering, or if you want to go digital, you can go to the website, mdcashville.org connect. Uh, but secondly, if you, you want to hang around after this gathering, uh, we're doing something we call Crash Course, which is just sort of an intro to the church, how you find out about us, uh, how, how you get connected, what, what we're all about. And we're going to be doing that immediately after this gathering. Uh, we got biscuits. It's going to be awesome. So um, if you want to stay for that, I, I hope that you will. And uh, it'll, it'll be in here, actually right up on that behind the curtain um, after, after this gathering. So hope you'll make time for that. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open it to Acts chapter 12. We are working our way through the book of Acts, and uh, as I have said over and over again, Acts is about the power of God unleashed through us, through everyday, ordinary, average people like you and me, uh, expanding his kingdom uh, through the, the, the mouths and the hands of his people. Uh, it started, of course, in, in uh, Acts chapter 1 with Jesus telling his disciples to wait that power would come, and when power came, uh, that they would be his witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and, and to, the ever, uh, to the ends of the earth. And, uh, and so they do that. They wait, and power comes, and, and they are filled with God's Spirit, and they are his witnesses, and they boldly proclaim the gospel, and, and it, it happens in Jerusalem. And then from there, uh, because of persecution, things spread to Judea and Samaria, and uh, before you know it, the, the, the ends of the earth have heard uh, the gospel. Now, lately, the wind has been at the backs of the church, right? Uh, Saul, who was their sort of fiercest opponent, has become a Christian, and so uh, there's, there's no opposition to speak of, and the church is able to flourish and expand. Uh, although, if we look at the whole journey from chapter 1 to now, we do see trouble, we see pain, we see hardship, we see persecution. Um, and once again today, in chapter 12, we're going to see persecution rise uh, against the church of God. And, and here's what I know about pain. Uh, it has a way of refining us, doesn't it? Pain has a way of refining us. Some things that we cling to become irrelevant when we're suffering. And only that which is essential sort of rises to the surface of our lives. I, I, you've probably experienced that, right? For these believers, it's the very thing that, that has been their foundation for their entire ministry, since day one, it rises to the surface in chapter 12. You know what it is? What's been the foundation of the church since day one? Anybody? No one? At least in the first service, I got a Jesus, like a Sunday school answer. The foundation of the church since day one, besides Jesus, has been prayer. Uh, I didn't see this until this week as I was studying. Uh, prayer is mentioned and or demonstrated in every chapter of Acts up till now. 
Uh, you see the church talking about prayer, praying, like it's talked about or demonstrated in every single chapter. Now, I know that um, prayer and money are the two things that when you talk about them from the platform, it sort of sucks the energy out of the church, okay? Because we all know we stink at prayer. Uh, and, and so I want you to hear this with maybe fresh ears this morning, um, but I want us to learn from this church because since Acts chapter 1, when it says that the church was devoted, they had devoted themselves to prayer, we see everything of their ministry uh, flourishes because of their prayers. And I want us to see uh, what we can learn about prayer and about God and about ourselves as we look at this church in Acts chapter 12. So um, I'm going to pray for us now. In the first service, I read the whole passage, um, but it's a lot. It's 20, 24 verses, and I kind of ran out of time. So let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in here, and we'll read a chunk and talk about it, read a chunk and talk about it. Sound good? Okay, let me pray and then we'll get going. Father, uh, once again, we come before you just grateful to be your children, grateful to be gathered together uh, in this room under the authority of your word and in the presence of your very spirit. And I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would do what only you can do in this gathering, that you'd fill me and empower me to preach this word, that you would give us open hearts and minds and ears to listen, to receive, and to obey, to apply uh, the, the scripture to our own lives and hearts. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not yet surrendered themselves to the Lordship of Jesus, that they would do that today. Um, but help us all to see the beauty and glory of Jesus, to cling to him more fervently than we have before. And may we walk out of here uh, loving you more deeply than we did when we came in. We ask this in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, let's get working. Acts chapter 12. If There's a paperback Bible in your seat if you want to use that. If you don't have one, or it'll be on the screens here. But let's look at the first five verses of Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That means he beheaded him. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized them... He put him, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer, mark that, underline it, circle it, earnest prayer was made for him, uh, was made to God uh, for him. Oh my gosh. What? Let me start again. So Peter... <laughs> was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. All right, we'll stop there for a minute. If you're a note taker, you can, I have very simple points this morning. Very simple. First point is this, prayer, prayer oh, my goodness, hold on, let me get in water. <laughs> it's going to be a long morning, y'all. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. That's my first point. Last week, if you're with us in chapter 11, we saw that Barnabas and Saul stayed behind in the city of Antioch for a whole year, discipling this new congregation, these new believers. And the text tells us in Acts chapter 11 that, that this um, prophet named Agabus came, and he told them there was going to be a famine in the whole land. And so the church there, they gather up some resources. They're generous uh, to give towards the church in Jerusalem uh, to take care of the churches in the region of Judea where the famine was going to hit hardest. And now in chapter 12, it says about that time which means it's in the same time frame here. This famine is going on. Uh, Saul and Barnabas are either in Antioch or on their way to Jerusalem. And it's about that time that persecution once again arises against the church in Jerusalem. But it's not from the Jews this time. It's from Herod, 
Now, there are several Herods in the scripture. Um, and so just really briefly, two of you might care, but I'll, I'll give you a synopsis. Uh, Herod the Great is who we hear about at the beginning of the Gospels. He's the one who tried to kill Jesus and then murdered all the first, the, the, those uh, firstborn sons uh, in the, in the, early in the Gospels. That's King Herod the Great. Now, he had a, he had a couple sons, and uh, one of them was named Herod uh, Antipas. Um, he ended up being the one that Jesus interacted with at the end of the Gospels. When he's arrested and before his execution, they send him to Herod. That's Herod Antipas. This is Herod Agrippa I, who is the, the nephew of Antipas and the grandson of Herod the Great, okay? Uh, and he kind of followed in the family footsteps, um, and, and he was a ruler. He was, he was put in position by Rome to rule over this Jewish territory, and, uh, and so they called him, he was called at times, the king of the Jews, okay? He was a ruthless man, as were all the Herods, uh, really liked killing people, and, um, and so as this Jesus movement began to arise, and they were saying that Jesus was the king of the Jews, that did not sit well with him. Now, uh, Herod was a consummate politician, uh, and he loved power, and he loved glory, uh, namely his own, and he loved his own agenda and advancing his agenda. And if you're a politician, how do you advance your own agenda? By appeasing your constituency, right? And so that's what he did. He, he was in charge of this Jewish territory, and so he wanted to appease them. So he arrests James. Uh, this is James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, if you remember the greatest nickname ever from the New Testament. Uh, he's one of Jesus' three best friends, right? Jesus has Peter, James, and John. And so um, James is arrested and then he's killed, likely beheaded. And that shakes the church to its core because he's an apostle. This is the first apostle, the first leader in the church who's martyred. And yet, even his death seems to have advanced the kingdom of God. Uh, there's an extra biblical story that's been sort of passed down through church history. And it says that James, on his way to his execution, there was a guard with him walking him towards his execution. And that by the testimony, the, the faithful witness of James on the way to his execution, that the guard placed his hope and trust in Jesus. And the guard and James were beheaded on the same, at the same time. Like, for that kind of boldness and courage and faith, right, to be on your way to death and proclaiming the gospel even to the guard who would uh, be responsible for your death, and that guy gives his life to Jesus. It's amazing. Um, and so James is arrested. The church is shaken these Jews who were powerless, right, because they're under the authority of Rome, they're happy that Herod has taken up their cause. And so now that he sees that they're pleased by the death of James, he goes after Peter. This is the third time that Peter has been arrested, twice by the Sanhedrin, now once by Herod. And so he's put in jail. And, you know, it, it, a little side point here, but if you've ever led anything, you know that leaders take shots, Right? Whether it's just leading your family, leading an organization, leading a business, leading the Cub Scout troop. Right? Leaders take shots. And Peter now is going on his third time in jail for not doing anything wrong but proclaiming Jesus. Okay? So here he's put in jail. The text tells us there are four squads of soldiers. A squad is four. So he's got 16 soldiers watching him, which sounds like overkill, right? <laughs> four squads of four soldiers watching one dude. Um, but the second time that he was put in prison, this is Acts chapter 5. Do you remember what happened? Peter's put in jail, and a ninja angel breaks him out. 
he comes in there and busts him out of there, and then he goes back to preaching the gospel. So probably that story circulated, and Herod was like, all right, somebody broke him out. We're not going to let that happen this time, right? We're on him with all of these soldiers. And so he's, he's being watched. And what is the church doing, doing during this time? Are they protesting? Are they, uh, are, are they getting on Facebook and blasting Herod's governing? <laughs> what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying. Fervently. Earnestly, the text says. They are praying earnestly, which means fervent or heartfelt, right? De- devoutly praying. Um, uh, praying urgently for Peter. Praying to God for Peter. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a time for dissent. It doesn't mean there's not a time for uh, opposing wicked authorities. But here's the deal. The church knew that ultimately this was a spiritual battle. And that prayer was their most powerful weapon in this battle. I wonder if we believe that. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, a great 19th century preacher Uh, Baptist from from London, he said, um, my soul's own conviction is that prayer is the grandest power in the entire universe, that it has more omnipotent force than electricity, magnetism, gravity, or any other of those secret forces by which men have called by name, but which they do not understand. (laughs) I'm I'm so thankful um, the older I get, I just turned 41 last week, and uh, the older I get, the more I recognize that the growth of God's kingdom comes by prayer more than by might, <laughs> more than by doing. And I'm a doer, so that's hard for me. And I'm really grateful that over the course of the last year or two, God has seen fit to bring saints to this church with a few more years on them than many of the rest of us, and, and they get it. I, I feel like it takes, it takes you to about 50, sometimes 60, to realize that prayer is where the believer's power is. And so these, these folks have come, and they've said, hey, uh, we want to pray. How can we pray for you? How can we pray for the church? You know, we want to we do battle uh, and wield our weapon of prayer. How can we pray and support the congregation? And, and that means the world to me because for so long, we were so young and all of us just being doer, we're just out there doing, you know? And, and to have that foundation, that support of, of prayer for people on their own in private and together to, to lift up this congregation, to lift up your leadership and, and to be in prayer just means the world to me. Do we believe that prayer is the greatest weapon that we wield? Is prayer our first response or our last resort? I know for myself, and I say this to my own shame, I try a lot of other stuff before I go to prayer. And, you know, I think the Lord lets us do that, to to get to the end of ourselves, to exhaust all other options and resources before we realize that it'll happen through prayer. God in his mercy, he lets us do that. He lets us get to the end of ourselves and realize sort of that hello McFly moment, you know, like anybody there? Remember, I do this, not you. Depend on me, trust me, come to me with your requests and your petitions and your needs and your desires and your heart. 
What would it look like for us if prayer was our first line of defense and not our last resort? Now, something else I want to point out here in this first little section. Um, Peter and the church have done nothing wrong. There's no sin. There's no rebellion against God and his will. And yet there's persecution. There's pain. There's hardship. There's difficulty. Pain, they did not ask for this, right? They did not ask for Peter and, and James to be arrested. They did not ask for persecution to come against them. And yet God has seen fit to use pain to drive them to deeper prayer. This has been sifted through the sovereign hand of God, and it's driving them to deeper prayer. And actually, sometimes, proof that our prayers are working is that opposition increases. Because there is so much at stake. When the enemy sees that the kingdom is advancing, that people are walking in faithfulness and in holiness, that, um, that darkness is being pushed back, that, that, that is a threat to him. And he pushes back and opposition actually increases. And so we should not think that when we pray and we see things get harder, that God's not hearing us. It means actually that there's a lot at stake in this moment and we should push through and continue to pray and let those prayers go deeper in our dependence on God. So prayer is powerful. That's my first, first point. But let's check on Peter here. He's been arrested. Let's see what he's up to. Verse 6, you guys with me? Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, so he's about to bring him out, parade him before the people, and then murder him, just like Jesus. You remember last week we said uh, in Antioch was the first time they were called Christians because they, were, they looked like Jesus, they belonged to Jesus. Well, they're going to arrest Peter just like Jesus, they're going to parade him out in front of the crowd just like Jesus, and they're going to execute him just like Jesus. When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was, what? Sleeping? What? On the night of his execution, he's sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side to wake him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And then he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, <clears throat> and where many were gathered together and were praying. I love this. So funny. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter 
continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw, and they saw him when were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. That's the other James, the one who was leading the church, the brother of Jesus, and to the other brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Okay, let's stop there. Point number two, God is faithful. God is faithful. I love the humor in this. Um, Luke is a historian, and he's showing us that God is faithful, and he's, he's painting the picture for us that, that this thing is not dependent on the prayers of the people, because they make some mistakes here in kind of a humorous way. So he's reporting what has happened here, but he's, he's just being honest, and I, I love this section of the passage. Peter is a death row inmate. He's chained to two soldiers. He's in between them, and there are other guards at the doors. This seems like an impossible situation, but our God specializes in the impossible. And, and so Peter somehow is sleeping. And, you know, it occurred to me uh, this morning that even on the night before his arrest, Jesus, what was he doing? He was praying. He was in agony. He was sweating drops of blood. And Peter was sleeping. <laughs> I mean, okay, put yourself in these shoes. For some of you, there is not enough z in the world or heavy enough weighted blanket or special pillow or chamomile tea for you to sleep on a normal night, much less if your life is on the other side of this thing, right? And yet here's Peter, hours from his death, chained to two guards, right? Just sound asleep enough that the angel has to like hit him and wake him up like a sluggish teenager to get him up out of bed. And, um, and, and it's crazy, right? But here's, here's the reality. Um, Peter witnessed the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Peter saw, you remember early on, um, the first time that Peter really saw the deity of Jesus. He's in the boat with him, Luke chapter 5. They've been fishing all night, didn't catch a thing. And Jesus is like, hey, he preaches, and then he's like, hey, let's go out in the boat. And they're like, sure. And he goes, hey, let's throw the net out on the other side. And he's like, I'm a professional fisherman, and I've been at this all night. But sure, let's do what you say, Bible teacher. And they throw the net over, and, and it, all these fish, right? And he's so struck with his own shame that he's like, depart from me, Lord. Like, he can't, he can't be in the same boat with the glory of God, right? So that's what he, he's seen Jesus heal people. He's seen miracles. He's seen all this stuff. He's seen Jesus teach with this crazy authority like no one's ever had before. He sees Jesus arrested. He knows he denied him, right? Denied even knowing him. He sees Jesus crucified, taking all of our guilt and shame and sin upon himself and absorbing the wrath of God in our place. He sees Jesus buried. Then he goes to the tomb and he sees the tomb is empty, and he actually has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus. There's actually an account in John 20 or 21 where, where Peter goes back to his old ways of fishing. And, uh, and from the shore, there's a voice. Hey, why don't you throw your net on the other side? You know, and he's like, that's familiar. And he does it in fish again. And this time, instead of running away from the glory of Jesus, he swims to shore and he's, and he's right there. And Jesus goes, hey, did, do you love me? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know I do. And, and, and Jesus asked him three times, which is a little bit of a jab. But then he... Um, 
Then he says, feed my sheep, right? I'm going to put you, like, you're going to lead the church. And so he has seen the life of Jesus. He's seen the death of Jesus. He's seen the resurrection of Jesus. And he knows that his future is totally secure in Christ. And he can rest. Come what may, his future is secure in Jesus. And so Peter is able to practice what he then tells us to practice in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, cast all your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. And when you know your future is secure, no matter which way the thing turns out, when you know that Jesus is with you, no matter what, you can cast all your anxieties upon him and you can rest. That's exactly what he's doing. So he's sleeping. The angel has to rouse him. If you've ever been woken up suddenly, you know you're in a little bit of a fog and that's what's going on. He can't really tell what's going on, if this thing's even real. He's had a vision just back in Acts chapter 10, the pig in a blanket dream, if you remember that. And so he's kind of stumbling around, like not sure what's going on. But the angel tells him, hey, get dressed, get your sandals on. We got to go. Let's do this. And he does it, which shows growth in Peter because Every time Jesus would tell him stuff, he'd be like, never, Lord. And when the, when the angel came in the, in the vision in Acts chapter 10 and says, rise, kill, and eat, he's like, I would never do that. And the Lord's like, come on, Peter, right? And so now when the angel says, get up, he does it. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know where he's at. He doesn't know what's going to happen next, but he obeys immediately. And beloved, when the Lord speaks to you, do what he says. Without hesitation, just do it. So here he goes. Angel leads him out of the, out of the prison. Um, you know, there's light. There's, I don't imagine angels come quietly, but um, no one else wakes up. And so perhaps, you know, in, a, in another miracle, like every other guard and, and prisoner stays asleep. You know, the iron gates open, presumably without a, you know, like I've seen a lot of movies and every iron gate creaks, like we need some WD-40 in there. But, but, Apparently he gets out, right? And, and there's nothing, there, there's no, uh, no pressure. And, and so they get out, he helps them escape, and then boom, angel's gone. And that's when he sort of comes to his senses and he realizes, oh, this was real. <laughs> this wasn't a dream. I'm out in the middle of the street and it's dark and I better hide. And that's when he says, now I know. Now I'm sure that the Lord rescued me. He wasn't so sure in the middle of it. But when he got through it, he was absolutely confident. And, and how many of us, in the middle of our trial, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of things going completely sideways, we are just not sure that God's in it or with us. It's not until we get through it that we see his faithfulness. Now, God did not prevent Peter from his arrest. He did not prevent him from pain but he protected him in it. And some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's all well and good for Peter, but what about James? Because <laughs> he's dead. He's missing his head. Doesn't seem like it went so well for him. And this is hard to remind you of because we don't think this way. But let me remind you that Peter, excuse me, James closed his eyes in death and when he opened him, what's the first thing he saw? Jesus. Smiling and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to your eternal home. And if James had been given the option in that moment, you just, you come face to face with the risen Christ, you're in heaven. Would you like to go back to earth and go back to jail or would you want to stay here? <laughs> what would he choose? 
yeah, I'm staying, right? No contest. And so it's pain for the church to lose James, but it is gain for James to, to meet Jesus. Amen? So we have to put our pain and suffering in perspective and realize that sometimes we pray for a certain outcome and it doesn't come, and that doesn't mean that God's not faithful to us. There is a tension all the way through the scriptures between the sovereignty of God and our prayers. Uh, Psalm 115 says, God sits enthroned in the heavens and does what pleases him. And yet, we also see that when God's people pray, stuff happens. Because the Lord is faithful. So we need to set it in our hearts, brothers and sisters, that when we pray, things that wouldn't ordinarily of their own accord happen can happen. Thomas Watson, uh, a Puritan, uh, one of the early uh, church Puritans, he, he put it this way about this story. I love this line. He says, it was the angel who fetched Peter, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. <laughs> I love that, right? It was the angel who fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Um, there's that tension. And so we pray, and, but we, we can pray with confidence. We can pray uh, with boldness because we know that our God is faithful and he will hear and he will answer. Now, Peter's on the lamb. He's got to get to hiding, okay? Because sooner or later, they're going to figure out that he's not in the prison and they're going to come looking for him. So the first thing he does is he goes to Mary's house. Now, Mary apparently was uh, a wealthier woman who, who likely her house was home base for the church. Uh, she's the mother of John Mark, who we'll learn about more in the book of Acts. But um, Peter gets there, and he's knocking not on the door, but on the outer gate. So she's wealthy enough that she's got an outer gate around her house. And so here's Peter, probably knocking furiously, right? Because I just got out of prison, but I can't get into your house. And, um, and, and so imagine that you are the people in this room praying. The church is gathered. They're in her home. It's late at night, and they're all praying, presumably for Peter, and there's a knock. What's going through your mind when it's late at night, you know, Peter, you know Peter's in jail, and there's a knock at the door? Uh-oh, right? They're coming to get us, like the, the jig is up, you know? Uh, and so the first part of humor for me is that they send Rhoda. They're like, hey, go, go, go see what that is. <laughs> you go do that. Uh, and so she goes to the door, and she recognizes Peter's voice, which means he's been there previously enough that she knows who he is, and she can recognize his voice. And it's like a sitcom, right? He's at the door and she's like, oh, it's Peter. And just bolts, takes off and doesn't even open the gate, right? And so he's just standing out there like, are you kidding me? So she runs back and she tells the group who is praying for Peter, hey, Peter's out there. And they go, you are crazy. Rhoda, 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 we are praying for Peter we don't need your joking around. Stop interrupting us while we pray for Peter. It's Peter. No, it's not Peter. And they go to the point of saying, it's probably his angel, which is like, what kind of whack theology do you people believe? <laughs> um, there, was, there was a doctrine in Judaism that, that people had guardian angels. Um, and th they believed that a guardian angel could take on the physical appearance of the person whom they were the guardian angel of. And so some scholars think that's what it was, that they were saying, oh, it's, it's just his guardian angel. Presumably like, hey, Peter's in prison. He's dead. His guardian angel now has nothing to do. And he's just like roaming the streets of Jerusalem and looking for something to do. 
More likely, the word angel is also, can also be translated as messenger. So more likely than, in, than, their, than them thinking, oh, it's an angel at the door, they thought Peter on his last night of life is sending us a message. He's a messenger from Peter. Maybe it's his last will and testament. Maybe he's got something important he wants to tell us. Either way, they don't believe it's Peter, which is, which is kind of crazy, right? Now, let's, let's give the church the benefit of the doubt here. They were praying fervently, earnestly, though it seems that they weren't praying expectantly. Put yourself in their shoes. After what happened to James, I can't imagine that the church had not gathered and also prayed for James. He's been arrested. We're praying for him. They, they might have even prayed things like, Lord, send an angel to break James out of jail like you did for Peter back in Acts chapter 5, you know? And then James gets murdered. And it's likely that they lowered their expectations in praying for Peter so they wouldn't be disappointed again. Does that resonate with y'all? Because it does with me. Um, I have prayed for things with conviction and courage and boldness and not seen them turn out the way I prayed. For instance, you know, someone is suffering with cancer and you pray for God to heal them and to, to, to just do what only he can do in their, in their lives and, uh, and then their condition gets worse. Maybe they pass away. And so the next time you hear about someone close to you that, that has cancer, you pray differently right? Maybe you don't have the courage to pray for healing again, because what if, what if they're not? What if I'm disappointed again, right? It's a real thing. And so perhaps this church lowered their expectations a little bit because they just weren't, weren't sure. And so they're praying things like, um, Lord, help Peter suffer well in his last hours. Lord, um, help him to be a good witness for you all the way up to his death, you know? And maybe they're not praying that he'd be released, which is why when he gets out, they don't believe it, because they weren't praying for it. It reminds me that all of us are a little bit double-minded, aren't we? In the book of James, it talks about praying, but, but not praying in, in a double-minded way. But, but we're all a little bit double-minded. Um, the reality is, as long as we're on this earth, our faith will always be mixed with a little bit of unbelief. So I think of that guy who came to Jesus, and his son was ill, and he said, Lord, would, would you heal him? He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, that's all of us. So even when we pray, we don't always expect that God's going to answer our prayer or that he's not going to, you know, it's not going to turn out the way that we hope for. But, but listen, I praise God that his answers to our prayers are not dependent on the amount or quality of our faith but his answers are, are dependent on his faithfulness. Let me say that again. God's answers to prayer are not dependent on our faith, but on his faithfulness. And he is faithful. How could it be otherwise? 
Like our whole salvation is to be received with the empty hands of faith, right? Jesus lives a perfect sinless life. Jesus dies the death we all deserve on the cross, taking our sin and shame and guilt on himself. Jesus rises from death, conquering our enemies. Jesus gives us the opportunity to be called children of God by surrendering to him. And we do that with the empty hands of faith. How could he then say, but if you want me to answer prayers, you got to bring some stuff to the table. No, we come with empty hands. We cling to Jesus and Jesus alone. We don't muster up merit. We don't muster up faith. I mean, this is the word of faith movement is an anathema to the gospel of Christ because it says if God doesn't answer your prayers, it's because you don't have enough faith. To hell with that. It's not true. It's not about how much faith we have. We must have faith. How can we please God without faith? Hebrews eleven six. 6. But we come to Jesus with empty hands asking him to do what only he can do. It's about his faithfulness, not our faith. Now, meanwhile, Peter's still over there knocking. Hello? I just got out of prison. I need in here. And so they all go. The whole church goes to the gate open the door. It is Peter. And they're all yelling and cheering. And he's like, oh, you be quiet. We don't want to cause a scene here. And so he tells him what happened. Then he moves on. He doesn't stay there, right? Because he's got to get out of Dodge because they're going to be looking for him. And here's what's happening. The church is learning. The church at this stage is learning that God is the God of Ephesians 3.20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine. They were not necessarily praying that he'd be released from jail, yet here he is right in front of them. They are amazed. And it reminds me that God often surprises us, doesn't he, with the nature and the timing of his responses to our prayers. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond we can ask or imagine. So, Beloved, when you pray, and I, and I hope that you do, when you pray, will you anticipate, will you expect that God hears you and that he will answer you according to his will, that he will answer, that he is faithful, that when you come to him with needs, requests, petitions, this, the, the brokenness of your heart, that he will hear you and that he will respond to you. If we are his children, how will he not give us good things? we belong to him, how will he then reject us and not answer our petitions? God is faithful. That's point two. You guys still with me? All right, last thing. Let me get a sip of water here. Look at verse 18 with me. Now, when day came, I love the way Luke says this, there was no little disturbance. (laughs) You think? There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus the king Chamberlain, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's food, on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. 
because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So my final point, we have prayer is powerful, God is faithful. Last thing, let's stay humble. Let's stay humble. Um, it, it, you might wonder why is this part about Herod in here, and I have, I have a suspicion, which I'll get to in a second, but um, <laughs> the next morning there's this chaos right in the prison because these guys wake up and there's no Peter and the chains are still there and they're on their wrist but not on his and they're like, you know, you go to sleep for five hours <laughs> and look what happens. And this is a big problem for Herod because again, he is a political puppet, right? And he wants to keep the people happy and this is going to really mess up his whole plan to execute Peter in front of this big Passover crowd and all that. Um, it's going to mess up his clout and so he, in, he in, does this investigation and the the God did it is not an option for Herod, you see? And so he's got to find some other solution. And, uh, and so th- they come to the conclusion that it has to be an inside job because how could you get out of prison when there's 16 guards watching you, you're chained to two of them, and you get out without a creak of the gate? It has to be an inside job. And the punishment at this time, according to the Roman law, if a prisoner escaped under your watch, then you would suffer the same punishment that that prisoner was supposed to suffer. So Peter was supposed to be put to death, and so... These soldiers are all put to death. And Herod has to get out of the city. He's like, I got to have a vacation, right? He's getting out of Dodge. But, but look at how God is answering a prayer they didn't even ask for. If Herod leaves Jerusalem and goes to Caesarea, what's that mean for the church in Jerusalem? Persecution is no more, <laughs> right? Because the persecutor, Herod, he's like, I'm done. I'm out of here, right? And he leaves. And so there's relief, all of a sudden, something again beyond what they asked or imagined. Now, it says again, he's in Caesarea. There's these people in Tyre and Sidon. They are probably, um, he's probably just angry and taking it out on them, to be honest. Um, but this is still the time of the famine. And so these people really need his country's produce to survive. And so f- there's some rift between them. They're trying to work it out. They come to some agreement, and it's supposed to be Um, announced in this big ceremony for the emperor Claudius. The historian Josephus actually uh, confirms this account, okay? A little little differently, but it's it's all basically the same. And here's what he says. Um, Herod comes to this ceremony, and he's wearing robes, these royal robes that that Josephus says are covered covered with like silver sequins. Um, I I just imagine like CeeLo Green or Elton John, you know? I'm somebody. And he comes out, and the sun is shining on this silver sparkling rope, and it's glowing, right? It's just radiating. And then he gives this speech, which is probably not a great speech, but they need him. The people need him. So they're like, the voice of a God, you know, they're just trying to butter him up. And he takes it, um, which is so curious because you remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter comes to Cornelius' house and, and Cornelius falls on the floor to worship him. And he's like, get up. I'm, no, I'm just a man. Don't do that to me. But Herod receives it. And the text tells us that immediately God struck him uh, and he died. Now, Josephus says that immediately he was struck with, in it, with a, a severe stomach pain, so bad that he had to be uh, essentially moved to bed rest, and he died five days later. Isn't it funny? Look at the text here. It says the order of this is really weird. It says that, um, where am I at here? Uh, verse 23. 
the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Doesn't that order sound strange? Eaten by worms and then breathed his last. Like you would think he breathed his last, buried, and then was eaten by worms, but that's not what he's saying here. Josephus uh, says he had a severe stomach pain. Doctors have surmised that in this time, there were all kinds of tapeworms, intestinal worms, and they would either ball up in your gut and block your intestines or sometimes cause a cyst that could rupture and then you would die. I know, great pre-lunch conversation. (laughs) But my whole point in this is to confirm that what the scripture says is confirmed by an outside historian who's not a follower of Jesus, right? Herod was struck by this pain. Five days later, he died. He was eaten by worms from the inside out and then he died Then he breathed his last. Isn't that amazing? Now, you might be asking, um, why is this here? <laughs> I asked that too. Um, a couple things to notice really quickly. The chapter starts with James dead, Peter arrested, and Herod in seeming control of all things. Chapter ends with Herod dead, Peter freed, and the God of the Bible in charge of all things. Okay? The word of God, the text tells us, increased and multiplied. Like, you cannot stop the church. Okay? Um, why is this here? I, I think it's because it demonstrates for us the contrast between humble, dependent, dependent prayer and prideful self-reliance. I think of Naaman from 2 Kings. He was a man of power, wealth, influence, and, and stature, and, uh, and he was struck with leprosy. One thing in his life he did not have control over. One thing in his life he was powerless to do anything about and, um, and here's, here's Herod struck with this intestinal pain that he can't do anything about. He's up against something that's completely out of his control. And by God's mercy, he gives him five days. Herod had five days to humble himself under the mighty hand of God. And he would refuse to do it. He had five days to repent, to see Peter released, to see this church growing and go, you know what? The God of the Bible must be real. And he would not do it. He would not repent. He would not surrender himself to the Lord. And it reminds me, golly, how stubborn and prideful some of us are and how unwilling we are to surrender ourselves to Jesus or to admit that we are dependent on him. And we try everything in the book to get our way out of our messes rather than simply saying, Lord, only you can do this. I can't. So listen, the Lord is writing each of our stories. And where things are now is not where they have to end. Some of you might be in a Acts 12.1 situation, right? There's a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. Um, and that doesn't have to be the end of the story, right? Some of you might be in, a, in an Acts 12.5 you know, part, and there's some hope there, but it's still uncertain. But it's not the end of the story. So we can, you and I can come to God with earnest prayer, with expectant prayer, with confident prayer because of Jesus. Like Peter later uh, in 1 Peter 3, he quotes from Psalm 34. And it says in Psalm 34 that, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to our prayers. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ear is open to, to their prayers. And beloved, that's only true in Christ. Because at the cross, Jesus took all of our sin and all of our guilt on himself, and he absorbed it all, and he covered us in his perfect righteousness. 
so that if you've surrendered to Christ, God sees you as his righteous, which means his eyes are on you and his ears are open to your prayers. And so let's be a people who stay humble before the Lord, low, asking him to do what only he can do. Let's believe that prayer is powerful. Let's believe that God is faithful. And let's ask him to do what only he can do, humbling ourselves before him, asking him to to work in our lives, in our families, right, in our church, through our church to affect our city. Prayer is powerful. God is faithful. Let's stay humble. Amen? All right, I got three questions real quick. I'll throw up on the screen and then uh, we'll move into our time of response. You can write these down as they come or you can take a picture of the screen when they're all up. Uh, First question is this. Is my prayer, sorry, is prayer my first response or my last resort? Is prayer the thing I go to instinctually, naturally? Now, not just in pain, by the way, at all times, but particularly in pain and hardship, do I go to prayer first or do I try everything else under the sun and then go to prayer as a last resort? I think it's a mark of our maturity uh, that, that prayer is our first response, right? That, that we are in tune with the Lord to the degree that we come to him with all of our needs at all times, uh, but particularly in pain. And, and, you know, myself included, for many of us, we're trying to dig out of the hole ourselves first, right? Prayer's a thing we do later. So is prayer my first response or my last resort? Second question, what keeps me from praying with expectation that God will be faithful to hear and answer even me? For some of us, it's disappointment, right? We've been dis- disappointed before. We're, we're leery of praying that same way again because we're just not sure. Some of us um, are just not convinced of the faithfulness of God. Some of us, it's just our pride. We don't want to ask for help, right? What, what keeps me from praying with expectation, with anticipation that God will hear, that he'll be faithful to hear, faithful to answer me when I pray? And then the last question is this. How can the Lord's faithfulness demonstrated to me in the gospel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, how can his faithfulness motivate me to stay humble and dependent on him in prayer? When I think about all that Jesus has done for me in his perfect life, in his death, in his resurrection, that I have the right to be called a child of God because I belong to Jesus. That if God is my father, he won't, he won't, he won't reject me. He won't give me wickedness, but he'll be faithful to me. He'll answer my prayers. And how does that motivate me to stay low before him, humble before him, dependent on him, coming to him like a child to a father and asking him to do what only he can do? How can the Lord's faithfulness, how can, yeah, how can the Lord's faithfulness demonstrated to me in the gospel motivate me to stay humble and dependent on him? All right, I'm gonna leave these questions up on the screen for you. You can take a picture if you want, write them down. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us. We'll have just a moment of silence. You can reflect, uh, and then the band's gonna lead us in a couple of songs as we uh, round this thing out and respond to him. Um, Father, thank you for this time in your word and for these men and women. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to study. And uh, I pray that something that's been said today would be an encouragement to your people. Uh, I pray that, they would, that we would be a people who believe that you are faithful and who pray uh, because we know you're faithful. And Lord, that you would just allow us to see um, even more than we ask or imagine. 
and you would demonstrate that faithfulness to us in our lives and in our church and in our city. We need you. And Lord, as we respond now, as we sing, as we celebrate, uh, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified and that we'd be filled with joy in your presence. We ask this in the name of Christ and by the power of your spirit. Amen.